0: Here's, here's what's going on. Um, today, we are going to do Exodus chapter 32. Um, if you were here last week, I'll kind of bring us all up to speed. Um, what I'm doing this week, as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story from last week. So um, <clears throat> that's kind of the big gist of what's going on. I'm gonna go ahead and pray. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we'll, we'll jump in and bring us all up to speed of where we are in the journey. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and love you. And we're so thankful that you would give us your word. We know that um, hearing sermons is not just like hearing speeches. It's not just hearing talks instead, it's hearing from you. And so I pray that God you would <coughs> that you would speak through me. I-, I confess that I am utterly and completely dependent upon you to do anything. And so any endeavor I have on preaching without Uh, The assistance or filling of your spirit is, is pointless. And so I pray, God, that you would come now and fill me. You would preach through me, that you would preach to me, and that you would preach to us all, and that your word would do its promised work, and that spirit, you would take the word and drive it down deep. And Lord, I pray that maybe this is things that we've heard and been familiar with and thought about, but that you would do... You do something amazing, that we would believe that you can do something amazing this morning with your word. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So um, the whole point of the journey, the whole point of this study throughout the the Bible throughout the year is to look at small stories or small things or small lure stories that are going on in the Bible and help you see that those stories are all just microcosms of the big story. The big story of the Bible is God created man to be in a relationship with him. We fell. He sent a substitute to bring us back to him. And one day we'll be united with him or live with him forever. And it'll be just like it was in the beginning where Adam and Eve experienced this perfect uh, relationship with God. We'll have that again one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And every story is a microcosm of some way of telling us that bigger story. And so that's what we're doing today. That's the whole point of... The entire study throughout the the Bible throughout this entire year is to help you see the gospel. That story, by the way, is the gospel. That just means the good news story. That story is everywhere in the Bible. We want you to see from Genesis to Exodus to even Proverbs all the way throughout that you can preach the gospel and see the gospel in every book of the Bible. That It's not just a, a New Testament thing that Jesus came, but it's every book of the Bible is telling us about this coming Messiah. So here's where we were last week. Um, last week we were in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. I'm going to, um, go, you know, about 10 pages to the left and bring us up to speed so we can understand what's going on. So, um... Moses had, uh, and the people were in Egypt, held in slavery. Uh, The the Pharaoh there had enslaved them, and Moses led them. The mediator, Moses, led them out of slavery, and he's taken them to the promised land. And in the same way, that's the big story. That's that's what we talked about last week, is that we were all slaves to sin, held slave, um, as slaves to the sin, and held in captivity. And Jesus, the truer and better mediator, leads, like Moses led his people out of slavery to the promised land. Jesus, because of his death on the cross, leads us out of slavery to sin, into slavery to righteousness, into knowing Jesus um, and being with him forever, into what would be the promised land or the new heavens and the new earth forever. So every, every story in the Bible is a, is a unique kind of special way to help us see what Christ has done for us on the cross. And while we were looking at it, the story is that they were... Um, and in Egypt, and they're coming back to the promised land. And as they're coming back to the promised land, they're somewhere in modern day Saudi Arabia, um, trekking through, going back to Israel. And as they're there, they're They're the worst travelers. I mean, just the absolute worst. I have kids, and so like anywhere you go, are we there yet? I gotta pee, I'm hungry. All this, uh, my iPad's out of battery. Oh, you know, whatever. I have all these things that they complain about. The Israelites are 50 times worse than that. Oh, we're hungry, we're gonna die. You just brought us out of Egypt so we could die here in the wilderness. You know, we're hungry. And so God's continually meeting their needs and they're just the worst travelers. They're they're three-year-olds traveling. And so as as they're traveling back to the promised land, God's showing them amazing, amazing grace. Um, and so in verse 5 of chapter 19, the Lord looks upon these people, His promised people, complaining and stiff neck, complaining at every turn. And then He makes, I mean, how, how gracious is this? He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I, I, as ungrateful as you are, in verse 5, He says, I want you to indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. and You're going to be my treasured possession among all peoples. When people look at all the peoples of the earth, they're going to see you and say, These people are truly loved by the one true God. He makes this covenant. They say in verse eight, yes, we're gonna do that. We want to to follow your covenant. Um, And then as that happens, the rest of 19 is the preparation of the people to be able to see God. This literally, Moses is going to go meet God, be with God, and he wants the people to see God. So on Mount Sinai, the people are kind of camped all around. He tells them to consecrate themselves or or make themselves holy. Uh, Moses goes up to meet meet with God. And then at the very end of verse 19, you can see Moses went down to the people. He tells them to stay right where they are. If you come up and just touch the fringe of the mountain, you're all going to die. And they don't want to die. And so they stay at the fringe of the mountain. And the Lord and, and Moses comes down to, um, to the people. And there they are encamped on kind of the outside or right below at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And the Lord in chapter 20 tells the people the 10 Commandments. Moses. And all the people together receive the voice of the Lord, as it says. Um, in 19, it's thunder and it's lightning. It's, it's verse 16. There's these big, loud thunders and lightning. So the booming voice of the Lord tells all the people, and Moses together, they're collectively there together, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so they hear all these Ten Commandments. That's, that's what we went over last week in chapter 20. Um, at the end of the Ten Commandments, where you get to around verse 18, it says, The people saw these thunders and the lightning and the flashing, and they hear the Lord um, telling them the booming voice of the Lord is so, to them so awesome that they take Moses and literally self-appoint Moses as a mediator. That's not good, right? They say, to hear the Lord and hear him talk to us is just too much for us. So what, what we want to do, Moses, is you go talk to him and just, just tell us what he says. That's all we can handle. We, we want a mediator. We want someone. And we don't want direct access. Instead, we're, he scares us so bad that we want you to go up there and mediate for us. And so that's where we're picking up there at the end of 20. It says... Um, well, I should say 19, the people saw the lashing, the frightness, they trembled and they said, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us. We don't wanna do that. And so um, Moses goes back up to the mountain. The people stood far off, verse 21, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So Moses goes back up and that's where we are. Moses is up on the mountain with God, meeting with him. All the people are down on the mountain and Aaron's the leader while they're down. And so if you look at these particular verses, What's going on from chapter 20 all the way to where we're going to be in chapter 32 is the conversation between God and Moses. Moses is receiving all of these special things that the Lord wants him to know about how to lead God's people. He gives them extra laws. You can see it in in 21, laws about slaves. He tells them, the covenant again. He tells them about the the Ark of the Covenant, what it's supposed to look like in chapter 25. Tells them what the table for bread and how you're supposed to make it. He tells them about the golden lampstand. He tells them about the tabernacle. Gives very specific instructions on how everything's supposed to be done. Gives them even like what the priest's garments are supposed to look like. Very specific stuff. And that's what basically this entire conversation is going on. Um, The altar of incense, all those kinds of things. And so As we're ending chapter 31, you're ending this big conversation that's going on between God and Moses. God and Moses up there. Moses has been up there for around 40 days. It took a long time for God to tell him all these things and for him to remember them all, I guess. Um, So what we we saw last week at the end of chapter 31 in verse 12 where God kind of unpacks the Sabbath. We talked about the seriousness of the Sabbath. In verse 18 in chapter 31 uh, is kind of where we're going to pick up. It says, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him. So finally, it's all done. He says, that's everything, Moses. And here are the 10 commandments that we said at the very beginning. I've written them down for you. Look what it says in verse 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking um, with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So that's what Moses has, the 10 commandments. Finally, the conversation's over. And Moses is going to go back down uh, and see them. So that's, that's what's going on. Now, chapter 32 is, as I said, the rest of the story. I want to, I know it's kind of long and lengthy, but y'all are awesome. You're hanging with me so far. We're going we're to actually read chapter 32, section by section, all the way through, and then we'll go back and, and look at four, four things in the chapter. So verse 32, we already know what's going on. Moses is coming down with them. The people have been down there with Aaron for four, roughly 40 days. What has happened? Now, you might be familiar with the golden calf story. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't say this. last last service, I should have, because I always wondered as a kid, why a cow? (laughs) If they're going to make an idol, why a cow? Why would they pick cows? Um, Back in that particular time, um, I can't remember where I read this, but back in that particular time, cows were thought of as kind of this um, illustration or example of fertility, and that's what they wanted to have, is fertility to continue on in generations and generations, and so it wasn't necessarily that they were, you know, cow lovers, uh, as much as they just, they wanted to have a continuing generation. So here we are, 32, 32, 32-1. Moses has been up on the mountain. It says, when the the people saw that Moses delayed, they thought it was just going to be a quick trip. He's there for 40 days, and to them, that's too long, to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Aaron, you're the leader. Up, make for us gods, little g, who will go before us as Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Um, so that we know what has become of him, for we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people took off all the rings of gold that in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned to it a graving tool with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. So all that sounds kind of familiar with the way that their religion is supposed to go, but obviously they're doing it to a golden calf. Um, And the next day, look at this, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play, just frolicking around like it's no big deal that they're breaking the first and second commandment that they just heard the voice of God tell them not to do. Like they, they just heard God say it, and then they break the first and second commandment. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Moses, go down, so again, the Lord and Moses are up on the mountain. The Lord knows all that's going on. And so they're having this conversation. He says, Moses, <laughs> they're already blowing it. This is what's going on. I want you to go down there. And he says, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They broke the first command and second commandment. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed To it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. By the way, every time you see gods in lowercase g, it's even using the word Elohim, the the word that they would would use for God. Um, Another name that they would call God, Elohim or Yahweh. They're very different, but they both mean God, and they're using Elohim here. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen, this is what God says about them down there, Fashioning the golden calf. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath might burn hot against them, and I can consume them, in order that I may make you a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, this is what he says to the Lord, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember "'The covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, "'whom you swore by your own self and said to them, "'I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven.'" This is Genesis twelve one through three. Uh, "'And this land I have promised you from your offspring, "'and they shall inherit it forever.'" Amazing. And the Lord relented. This literally means changed his mind. Relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides and the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. We saw that over in 31, that it was written by the finger of God. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, because Joshua was with Moses, this is noise... There is noise of war in the camp, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. They're, they're playing. Verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp. Now, the Lord had ar- Moses had already been told, but now he's visually seeing it. And this is, <laughs> his reaction is the same as the Lord's. As soon as he came near the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses burned, anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That's, isn't that just so heartbreaking? Um, God wrote things on tablets and gave it to him. He's so mad he broke them. He took the calf that they had made and burnt, this is awesome. He took the calf that made, burned it with fire, ground it into powder, scattered it in the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. That's awesome. And Moses said to Aaron, What you, so he's looking at Aaron and going to address his poor leadership. Aaron, what you did to this, uh, what what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord, talking to Moses, burn hot. You know, the people that they are set on evil. Mm. For they said to me, this is true. Make us gods who shall go before us. They did say that. As for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. They did say that. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. Okay, all that's true, and here comes the lie. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Right, that's that's how it happens. That's exactly how it happens, Aaron. Um, Verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, that's breaking out into sin, um, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the... The gate, the gate of the camp and said, Moses is going to draw the line. Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. By the way, Aaron was a Levi. So likely they followed in this path of following poor leadership. And then they decided we're not going to do that anymore and came over. Uh, this is where it gets tough. I'll address it later, but I know this gets tough language um, or tough in the story. So they drew the line. And then in verse 27, he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side each of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the entire camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Those who said that they're not going to be on God's side. That's what happens to them. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Those who did not want to be on God's side. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own son and his own brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book, that you have written, but the Lord said to Moses, "Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book." But now, but now, go. You lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. But behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I will visit them, and the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So that's that's the rest of the story. Now, as we're looking at it, we just think, "What is going on here? I mean, what? Why is this happening? What's going on?" John Calvin said this 500 years ago once. He said, the human heart, the human heart is an idol factory. Literally, it's like a big, huge factory. And as soon as you set your heart on one, it goes to the factory. Boom, here comes out the idol. He says, as soon as you kill it, the heart's already making another one. And then he says this, every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert at inventing idols. Everyone, including me, all of us, we are experts at inventing idols every one of them. So what's going on here is this. Um, I remember this week as I was studying, I kept looking over, Jordan was in the office, and I'd say, I cannot believe what's going on. <laughs> Can you, they are so fickle. Like, all Moses did was take too long. Can you believe this? All he did was just take too long, and all of a sudden, they're just like, oh, we got to get something else. We need somebody else. Um, they heard God's voice, and they're like, ah. Uh, we got to get some idols here. Let's make a calf. I just kept kind of finding myself in awe. And then as I thought more about it, and I considered what I think Calvin says is true, that the human heart is an idol factory. What's going on here is this, and I think this is true not just for them, but for also you and also for me, that our hearts are also idol factories, and that I'm an expert on inventing idols. And because of that, I'm no different than them. And likely I would have done the exact same thing. And likely you would have done the exact same thing. We are, we're so fickle with our following, it seems like. We can be stiff-necked and as it says, set on evil continually. And so I think the, I, I have four things I want us to see. I alliterated it. Just, I don't know why. So four <laughs> revolutionary remarks regarding erroneous reverence. Erroneous reverence, by the way, is idolatry. And yes, that E in erroneous kills me, but it still, it still alliterates. Um, but four revolutionary remarks regarding erroneous reverence, or you can just write this, four notes about idolatry. Um, that's much easier, I know. But that's what we're gonna look at. Is There's four things in this particular text about idolatry that you, we all should recognize and understand. Um, the first one, as you see, In verses one through nine, is this that you should watch yourself, so that none of you fall into idolatry. I mean, I I think that's the clear first thing we all need to realize. If I were a betting man, and I'm not, I'm not a betting man. I've never done that. So, but here's my—I shouldn't say I've never done that. I'm sure I have. I don't bet now for sure. But if I were a betting man, and I was somebody who was going to say, "All right, here's the situation." If there ever was a time where you were going to place a bet on who would not be idolatrous, I would say, okay, here's my bet. The people that just heard God's voice say, don't be idolatrous. That would be my, I mean, the voice of God looked at them, at the particular people and said, don't be idolaters. If the voice of God literally spoke to someone at that right particular moment, and I was going to say, if all the times of idolatry is going to happen, that's my bet it's not. Because they were the ones that actually just got told by the loud, booming, thundering Voice of God, to not be idolatrous, to not commit idolatry, that would be the people that that it would happen to, and they do it. If they commit idolatry and they just got told by God, out loud, audibly, then I think the thing that we can learn from ourselves is we better watch ourselves. Every one of us certainly can fall into the sin of idolatry. So the first thing is, or the first remark is, Watch yourselves so that you don't fall into idolatry. And I would say, be ever vigilant. Continually watch. There's not a moment where you can take off. So what do I mean by idolatry? Idolatry is this, you know, it seems like that, that concept of 2,000 years ago. What does it mean? Um, one professor, Tony Morita, he's a professor pastor up in Raleigh. He says, idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. This is idolatry, putting anything in the place of God. Idols are counterfeit gods. They're fake gods, they're false gods. Anything you seek to give you only what Christ can actually give you is is an idol. In other words, joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, and salvation, all those things come from Jesus. And if you seek anything else to give you that, it's an idol. So, idolatry is all about the heart. It's not so much about your external actions. It's more about your heart. So seeking money or sex or romantic relationships or peer approval or wanting to have competency and skill in the eyes of others or seeking too much to be secure in your comfortable circumstances or beauty or brains or success or ambition, all these things can be idols if put above satisfaction in Jesus. I'll say them again just so you hear them again. Any of these things that are pursued as more important or more desires than Jesus, money, sex, relationships, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competency and skill in things, security and comfortable circumstances, beauty or brains or success and ambition, all these things, if sought after over Jesus, they're idols. Now, you may not like these people struggle with worshiping a cow um, you may, like me, struggle with wanting to eat cows a lot. Now, I love cheeseburgers, but I don't ever go out into the field and just bow down at them, right? I never do that. So we need to understand what idolatry is. That's so ridiculous. Um, understand what idolatry is. So I want, to, I want to look at these particular verses here and this, under this section one and um, let you see a few things that are pretty astounding. I think there's some pretty amazing things that jump out. First, The people saw that Moses delayed. So these fickle, just taking too long to meet my needs, God. So I'm going to go ahead and make it happen on my own. So we already see um, impatience. We already see people that that don't want to operate on God's timetable. They want their will to be done, not the Lord's will to be done. And then it says, they go to Aaron and they say, Make for us gods who shall go before us. I mean, that's interesting. Go before us. Like the pillar of fire and cloud that led them out of captivity. They know somebody's supposed to go. So this is, this is intrinsically a good thing. A good thing that they would want and they understand that we need a God to lead us and we want good leadership to do it. And so we want this to happen. So they, At the base, it's, it's diving into the fact that they're already worshipers and they know that they need God to do this, but they're seeking other places. And they say... Aaron make for this so that we don't know what's happened with Moses. I guess he's gone. It's been too long. And then Aaron, I mean, what a horrible decision here. Give me all your gold and I'm going to go do something. Interestingly enough, this gold was was gold that they um, ascertained while they were in Egypt. So as they were leaving Egypt, the Lord gave them all this gold as a gift, as God said, you know, plunder it. It's all yours. So they take this. So this is good gifts from God, from them. And they take the good gift from God and turn it and use it for evil use. I mean, think about that. How many good gifts do you have from God? Whether it be a smartphone or even a flip phone or a television or, um, I mean, there's things that can be used for that for good. We need to know the weather. I want to know those things. You can have some level of of entertainment that still falls into the confines of, of not sinful. You have phones that can be helpful to talk to people more instantly, communication with loved ones that live far away because we're, we're, you know, more expansive in our families. We've got all these things that can be used as good computers so I can type and you can type and we can be educated. All these things can still be used for evil. Good gifts from God that the Lord gives us and they take it and make an idol out of it rather than, I mean, so we see that they're taking the good gift of God and using it for idolatry. And then you have them... um, offering those things literally as, as offerings to God. They're making offerings to their particular gods. These things, worship, their worship was wrongly um, directed. Wrongly directed instead of to Yahweh, they're offering it to this golden calf. And then they act like it's no big deal. And it's just eat, drink, and let's have a party and play. No big deal that we did all that. And they just heard, I mean, they just heard the actual audible voice of God say in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's on, that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath it and under the water. For I am a jealous God. They just got through here. And all, not even 40 days later, they're breaking the first and second commandment. So we have all these things happening. As a matter of fact, the writer of Psalm 106 at verses 19 through 22, looking back at this incident, um, at this uh, this. Occasion, he says, they made a calf in, in Horeb and, it, and worshiped a metal image. They, this is so unbelievable. This is just says it like flat out. This is really what happened. They exchanged the glory of God for an image, not even the real thing, but just an image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged the glory of God for an animal image. And all that animal does is just walk around and moo and eat grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. He had done wondrous works in the lands of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot everything that the Lord had done for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, Paul is actually writing about some of these things that's been happening to, to uh, the people of Israel and, and warns the present people in Corinth about idolatry. This is what he says, and I think this just drives home what I'm trying to say. First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he's saying, ultimately, the one that led them, the, the Israelites out was Jesus the whole time. And, and <clears throat> he tells us this, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil like they did. Do not be idolaters. He just, in verse 7, turns right to idolatry and says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. He's going to quote what we just read. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then he says, we must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 20,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, as were destroyed by serpents and grum- nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then he says this. This is the whole point. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't ever think that you've got it on your own strength. Don't ever think, I'm fine, I don't need any warnings. Don't ever think that you are beyond falling. Always consider what we're saying here in point number one, which is watch yourself that you don't fall into slavery, to sin, and slavery to idolatry. Every single one of us, because of our heart, is susceptible to this. Don't ever discount yourself away from this. This is exactly what Israel did. A.W. Tozer, Aiden Wilson Tozer, says this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. I'm going to say it one more time, because we, we can have small thoughts of God. He says the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Our thoughts of God should always be worthy of His magnitude and glory. And any small diminishing thoughts we have about Him, where we can exchange that glory for oxes, images of oxes that eat grass, or fill in the blank on that list that I wrote uh, or, or said earlier about what, what you can struggle with, whether it be joy, security, um, meaning, significance, identity, salvation. If you try to seek those things other than Jesus, money, sex, romantic relationship, peer approval, competency and skill, security, comfortable circumstances, beauty, brain, success, ambition, you seeking any of these things above Christ or not trying to get it from Jesus, then we're all idolaters. And take heed. Now, that was the first um, remark regarding idolatry. What I'm going to do here is we're going to stop where we are at verse 9 and move over to 15. Now, uh, I'm actually going to go out of order. That was point one. I'm going to go to point three for, for you that, you know, the type A is just going to kill y'all. I know. We're going to come back. We're going to come back to point two, I promise. But we wanted you to go over to verse 15. This is number three. This is number three, and i Ordered at number three just because, you know, one, two, three, and the verses should be sequential. We're going to come back to two, I promise. But let's look at verse three. This is whenever Moses came down. Um, There's some things I want you to see. In verse 15 through 20, Remember when he came down and he said, he said in verse 19, as soon as he came down, his anger burned hot. he threw the tablets, and then he did this awesome work. He took the calf that they burned, and he burned it with fire. He ground it into powder. He scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. Now, that's not like a uh, a direct command for you to do if you catch somebody in idolatry. Um, But the thing that I think we can learn about 15 through 20 is when Moses saw the idolatry, the confrontation that he had was straightforward, it was straightforward. He didn't dilly-dally around. He didn't soft-pedal it. He didn't do any of that. He was straightforward. He came with boldness and confronted. So he, I w- here's maybe the application I, I want you to think about. When you're confronted about idolatry or you confront someone about idolatry, you have to do it in love. They have to feel that you actually care about them and love them and that you're not just saying this as some kind of you know, mean-spirited person that doesn't give a rip about them. You have to do it in love. But when you do it, just do it straightforward. Be straight with them. This is what I see. Or when they're telling it you, when you receive it, don't go crazy and say no, no. It's not. Don't soft pedal it. Don't try to cloak it in, um, in language that maybe doesn't describe the situation. Instead, just be. A, that's what Moses. I think what we can get out of here with that verse twenty. I think what we can learn is that we need to be straightforward about what's going on when we see idolatry or when we're confronted. Receive it and just say you're right. That's what we're going to get out of verses 21 through 24. When Moses goes to Aaron and he says, you know, what have you done? What have you done? And, and Aaron's like, it wasn't me. These people, you know, um, you know that they're just all set on evil. Remember, like from Egypt to here, how awful it's been? It's all them. I mean, all they did, they asked me for all this stuff. They gave me the gold and I just threw it in the fire, <laughs> and boom, out came this thing. It's like, it's magic, Moses. I don't know what happened. Um, by the way, I, I want you to, I think this is awesome. Moses wrote Exodus, and so Moses, as the lie kind of is in verse 24, as Moses wrote chapter 32, he wants us to make sure that he, we can see the lie of Aaron. And so in verse five, I'm sorry, in verse four, he says the um, Moses, or Aaron received the gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a golden calf. So he, he says it didn't just go in the fire. And he actually ends the chapter in verse 35 where he says, they sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. <laughs> like, don't forget, just so you don't think, it didn't throw into the fire. Mo, as Moses wrote this, I'll show you, Aaron. You made it. not. Everybody's going to know. So like, maybe I don't think he did it that way. But when, here's, here's the point, right? Here's the point. When guilty... When guilty, don't shift the blame to others. It's the people. They're just set on evil. I don't know what it is. When guilty, don't minimize it and make it feel like it's, don't lie, say, I just threw in the fire. Don't do any of that. When guilty, confess um, and say, yes, it was me. Don't don't tell a half lie because it's still a lie. When guilty, just, yes, own it. Own it and don't try to blame others and don't try to blame, uh, blame shift or minimize it. That's, that's what I think we can get out of there. When we get to the next little sections, um, this, this is where it gets tough. 25 and 26, Moses saw that um, people had broken loose and he stood on one side and he said, who is on the Lord's side? And so I think that this, who's on the Lord's side, is just a, a call for us to remember that when confronted with the sin of idolatry, which none of us can Escape. That we need to not um, try to stay on the selfish side of things, but instead realize that if we belong to the Lord's, that we need to say, I'm going to repent fully. I'm coming over. I, I, I want to be with you, Lord. I, I, I confess that I'm sorry. This next section I want to, I want to talk about a little bit because I know it's tough in verse 27, where it says, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side. So the people that said, We're with you, God tells the Levites to get your sword and go out. And everybody that said that they weren't on your side, basically kill them. And 3,000 people were killed that day. Now, um, that is not for us to do, right? For the people that are remaining in idolatry, so don't, don't stay on the Lord's side. God's not saying, therefore, you have the right to kill them with a sword. That's clearly not what it means. Um, one commentator, I, I don't know if this necessarily changes it, but in, where was it? Ephesians, I'm sorry, Exodus, I think it's 1327, I could be wrong, 1327, something like that, where he says there's like 600 men, and if you consider, that means it's almost like 2 million people. So 3,000 out of 2 million, the, the commentator says this is like 0.05% of Israel. So 3,000 sounds like a lot, but when it collectively, you look at all of Israel, it's less than 1%. That's not discounting 3,000 people, right? 3,000 lives were still taken. But when you look at this, um, what's going on? Why... Why would this happen? Because when I read it, I'm just like, man, God. Like, you tell the own people to go kill 3,000 people? That's, man, wow. This is what I want us to learn from this. I know it's tough. But what the Lord, I think, wants us to see as we look at this is the severity of sin is great. Like, the Lord wants you to see that sin, the sin of idolatry, is not a small thing in his eyes so much so that he gives the Levites this command to go do this. And the judgment of God is great. For those that don't repent, for those that remain idolatrous, for us, if there's anyone here that doesn't ever repent and come to know Christ, the spiritual judgment of Christ is death. We will all be eternally separated and killed forever. We will be in hell and so what I, I think that the Lord wants us to see here is that the severity of sin is great. That whenever we sin against the Lord in acts of idolatry, that he, he is not, um, he's not okay with it at all. He doesn't think that it's a small thing at all. But instead, it's so great that he would give um, these kinds of judgments. One, one commentator also said that it was absolutely necessary for Israel, for those that weren't going to be with God on his side, for Israel themselves, the people of Israel, to have those people purged continually so that the people of Israel would be as pure as possible because the Messiah would come from them and he didn't want the Messiah coming from half-hearted people and that the, the Gentiles and Jews that would eventually come to know Jesus later on um, would see a pure people that they were being called to. I understand what he's saying, but still, it doesn't make reading that, I, I don't think, any, any uh, easier. But as we get to this, here's, here's what I want you to see. Seeing this, the severity of sin, I think it leads us all to something pretty large, which is for those of you that don't ever um, take heed and think that idolatry is a big deal, and for those of you that aren't going to say, yes, I'm going to be on God's side, you can see the spiritual judgment that will come, which is death, spiritual death and eternal separation from God. But on the other side, for those of you that do know Christ and do see idolatry and do identify idolatry and repent and confess. The other side of that, which is also huge for us, is that we can be forgiven forever. We can be on the Lord's side. That's what brings me back over to point number two. Let me put up point three. I don't know if, I'm sorry. Point three, the sin of idolatry forces us to see the severity of God's judgment and our need to truly repent. As we see that story unfold, What's evident is God hates idolatry. He hates it. He just got, I mean, he led off the Ten Commandments with it. Not that he ranked them in in order of how much he loves one more than the other, but the first two commandments were addressing that you should have no other gods before me. Absolute monotheism, only to Yahweh. And don't carve anything because I'm a jealous God. Don't make an image or an idol of anything because I'm supposed to receive it. So the, the severity of the judgment forces us to see that the sin of idolatry is huge in God's eyes and repentance is absolutely necessary. So if we're all on the same page of agreeing that any of us that have an ongoing idolatry problem, that repentance is necessary, I want you to look at this intercession that Moses makes before the Lord, and let's get an idea of what this prayer of repentance, this intercession might look like. This is, this is amazing. This is unbelievable, this conversation. At verse 10, the Lord just said to Moses that the people have corrupted themselves, they have turned aside quickly, they fashioned this golden calf, um, and Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they're a stiff-necked people. They're they're rebels at heart. They have no softening towards me. I've seen them. All the time they keep acting this way. And this, I mean, God looks at Moses and says, let me alone, just leave me alone so that my wrath might burn hot against them and consume them. I mean, think about this for a second. God himself looks at Moses and says, they're all wretched sinners. They're all stiff-necked and they, and they don't like me. I want you to just leave me alone because I'm going to kill them all. Like, if I'm Moses at that time, I would say, okay. <laughs> <It's> a, like, <laughs> you're God. I mean, I'm supposed to obey everything you say. And, you know, I would freak out and probably run. I want you to think about the fact that Moses didn't do that. God said all this to him. Let me alone. And the boldness of Moses... To not just stay, but then say next things after this. This is amazing. This boldness is going to be something that we're going to pattern our prayers of repentance. But look at this. Not only did he stay, but Moses implored the Lord God. Begged him, God, no. Please don't do that. There's two things I want you to see as we look at this. Number one is how much Moses must love Israel to stand there and do this. I mean, he must love these people, knowing that they're stiff-necked. Do you love idolaters, your friends, that, that fall away this much? Do you care this much about people to say, no, Lord, I'm standing in the gates here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand right here and implore you, God, to not bring it to them. I mean, think about how much he loves, um, loves them and the amazing conviction that he has, especially in a, opposed to the other poor leadership of Aaron down there fashioning the golden calf. But not just the first thing that you need to see is how much Moses loves the people, but also the content of the intercession that Moses makes, the content of this prayer of intercession as he talks to God. There's, there's kind of a, uh, a pattern to it. As a matter of fact, remember I mentioned Psalm 106, 19 through 23, how they, how they loved an image of an ox that eats grass at 19 through 22, verse 23, that Psalm writer says this about Moses. Therefore, God would have destroyed them all had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away the wrath of destroying them. So like, amazing, amazing conversation here that Moses is gonna have. And the Psalm writer even tells us that it literally, um, he's standing in the breach and, and this conversation turns away God's wrath. Quite amount of boldness where God says, leave me alone. And this is what he says. Verse 11, o oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you and notice what He does here, brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? The first thing that he does in this prayer is he reminds God of his greatness and reminds God of his delivery from slavery. God, think about what, how great you are and what you did to help these people. The next thing right after that is he appeals that God um, will be thought of as less by the other nations. And so he says, God, don't let your glory be minimized, not just in, the, in your eyes of your people, but even the other nations. I don't want your glory to be minimized. Look what he says. Um, he says, why should the Egyptians and, and virtually all of the other other people say, with evil intent, did God bring them out just to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? In other words, we don't want people to think that you aren't awesome. We don't want anybody to think that, because you are. And then the third thing he does is he this is where it gets amazing he pleads he makes a plea with God to turn from his anger and his wrath (laughs) consider this God turn from your burning anger that's unbelievable because they totally deserve it turn from your burning anger and relent this is literally change your mind from this disaster against your people and then he grounds it in this, God, remember the covenant. This is why I'm asking. Remember the covenant you made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, and appeal to God to do all this because of the covenant that he based with them. If you wipe them all out, there will be no many as children as the sands of the seashore, as multiple as the star. And he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and covenant, your servants, where well, you said, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven in this land that I have promised, that they will give to you an offspring and they shall inherit it forever. All that was the content. And here's the result of this amazing intercession Moses makes. Here it is. And the Lord relented. That's that's crazy. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I want you to feel this. The Lord relented. You've probably been told in your life that prayer is... Is primarily for the benefit of the one praying. That's what prayer is for. It's for your benefit. I know what's being said there, and I'm not going to attack that um, statement. I, I, think it's, I think it's helpful. However, it's maybe just not complete. It's not, it's not full enough because of verses like this. If you think that prayer is just for your benefit just so that you can get on God's page and his page never changes. Um, It it doesn't make sense verses like this. I I want you to think of it this way. Your praying, you praying to the Lord causes big things to happen. And and unless you ask, it won't happen. That's, That's what the Bible seems to be telling us here. In your prayers, you should pattern after this. Tell God that he's great. Appeal to him based on his character and his faithfulness and the gospel. You've pulled me out of slavery too, Lord. Appeal to him. Tell him that he's great and say, Lord, I want your will to be done. Not my own selfish desires like the Israelites or even Aaron. I don't want to be great. Moses doesn't want to look good. He wants God to look good in front of all the nations. Appeal to him and believe like Moses did. Moses believed. he said, let me alone and get out of here. And Moses said, I want to employ you for a second. So he believed that God would literally change. Something would change if he asked. We need to believe that God answers prayer. So when we say um, prayer is just for the benefit of the one praying, um, if we believe that just at its most kind of base thoughts, we'll never pray big prayers. We'll never ask huge things well, it's just going to affect me. I guess I guess it doesn't ever affect God. So why, why pray huge things? Let, let me read something to you um, in Ephesians chapter three. Listen, I know, and maybe you don't know, uh, and maybe you do know, I don't know where you are, but perhaps you've become aware that verses like this have kind of been hijacked out of the Bible by people with not so good theology that say, you just ask God for an airplane, he's going to give it to you, you know? here it is like okay i know that that this verse has been hijacked by them but forget it like they they don't get to hijack these verses these are still people that aren't crazy in their theology this verse is still ours right this is my this is our verse and so when it's here it's true and when we talk about praying big prayers it counts for us too and we don't just get to say ah we don't use that verse it's scary because people say you know god you know make me the king of the entire earth you know like like God's going to do that or something, right? So I want you to hear this, and then I, I, want, you to, I, want, I want us to kind of apply it. Verse 14, Paul says, he's, Paul's praying for the Ephesians, and this is what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant, to you, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, Through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. So I want you to know this love. He want you to know the breadth, length, height and depth of the love of Jesus. Amazingly large, more than you could ever conceive of Jesus' love for you. And he goes, I want you to know all that and not just that, that, you would be, that it would surpass just your simple knowledge and that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, be totally filled with the Spirit. That's what he's prayed for you. And then he makes this closing kind of statement, maybe a benediction. He says, now to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all, here it is, this is part of prayer, we ask or even think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory. What's being said there is we can pray prayers, whatever we ask, that whenever he hears it, that he is able to do far more and far more abundantly than ever that we could even think he would do. This is what I want. Okay, that, that doesn't even touch the scales of everything that I can do. I can do far more abundantly than you can even conceive of. And if here we're seeing that prayer, this amazing intercession of Moses, literally causes God to say he's not going to do this, then that means that we should pray these bold, and I mean absolute bold, prayers. Go ahead and put up number two. Number two says this. When you recognize your idolatry, pray bold prayers of confession or repentance to God. You have, because of Jesus, the ability to pray amazingly bold prayers. L- let me tell you, in Hebrews 4.16 Because of Jesus, it says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that because of Jesus and his death on the cross, there's no mediator. Hey, Moses, tell this to God for me. Okay, I'll tell him. And then, hey, God, this is what, we don't have that. And instead, we have this mediator who has become not just the mediator, but also the substitute. And now since Jesus is God, we have boldness crazy boldness to go right up to God, right up to him and say with all kinds of boldness, God, this is what I'm asking for. You can do far more and abundantly ever I could conceive of. This is what I'm gonna to say to you. And I can ask it and I know that because I'm finally asking it and not just holding it and thinking, oh, God doesn't wanna hear from me. I know that if I say it, that if I don't say it, nothing will happen. But if I do ask, that you could answer it. You could just blow it up. You could do far more than I could ever conceive of. So if you could, I know we're talking about repentance and idolatry, but I want to expand it out just a little bit in regarding prayer. I want to ask you something. If you could pray one, I mean, huge, crazy thing, something that is, you've, you've let bake around in your head, but you've never prayed it because you're like, that. That would never happen. That's ridiculous. If you could have that happen, it would be something that glorified God. Like you, you, this huge thing, what, what would that be? What would it be? I want you to write it down right now. Write it in your book, on your piece of paper. If you're not, if you're typing in your notes, type it right on your arm. Whatever. I want you to write it down like right now, in your book. That huge thing. If you don't have any idea, then, then let your mind go crazy with Ephesians 3.20. Like, whoa, more than I can even conceive of. Write it down right now. Something massive. Something that it's not going to happen unless God does it. Because nothing's too big for him. Maybe it, I want, I want 100 people saved in my ministry this, this year. 100 people. I think I've told the story once. But whenever I was in college, Uh, actually, I just graduated. I was working at Charleston Southern. Um, There were still some students that were juniors and seniors I used to hang out with, I'd go to their houses, at, or their house, their dorms, at 6.30 or 7 or so in the morning. I'd bring them all, I'd wake, knock on the door, wake them up, hand them coffee, and from 7 o'clock to 8 for a full hour, me and about four other guys, we would pray. We were all kind of ministers in the area, youth ministers, and so we'd pray on Wednesdays that we would, you know, we had to preach that day or whatever, the Lord would use us, etc. And so we did that for an entire year, every Wednesday, every Wednesday, we'd pray. And one of those particular Wednesdays, um, Charleston Southern, it's a Christian school, there was a uh, well-known kind of evangelist coming. And so we're, we're praying and we're like, you know what? There's an evangelist coming today. Like he's gonna, he's gonna light it up. This dude can preach. He can bring it, you know? He can shuck the corn. So let's let's pray something big. And so like, all right, let's do it. What do y'all wanna do? I don't know. Um, let's pray that God would save somebody. All right, how many? 10, 50, 50. Let's pray that God would save 50 people today in chapel. It's just a regular Wednesday. People are coming to class. They got lunch. You know, this isn't some special thing where it's been pumped and pumped and pumped. You know, what, what, what if God would do that today? All right, let's pray. For an hour, we just put it in there. Lord, we pray that you would you could do something crazy. And so we get to chapel. There we are. I mean, he does. He, he brings it. This dude can preach, right? So at the very end, he's calling for it. I knew he was going to. I didn't want to look. I just put my head down. God, I don't even want to look. I'm afraid that, I don't even know if you'll do it. So I'm just going to keep my head down. And I'm going to be like, you can do it, God. You can save 50 people. I, I'm, I'm afraid to look. I don't know why. Like you just feel that. I'm afraid to look to see if you're going to answer it. So I just keep my head down and I'm just, I'm just praying, God, think of all the glory you'll get if you save 50 people. Just change their hearts right now. Draw them down. Let them, let them hear the gospel. Let them understand it right now. Just keep drawing, keep drawing. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on. If it's zero or who's down there and I just hear anybody else. I'm like, that sounds good. Sounds like people are coming. Anybody else? All right. And so finally um, he goes, all right, that's it. And so I finally look up. What's the first thing I do? Start counting. One, two, three, four, five. I'm not kidding. I start counting. I can't believe it. I got to 51, and I just like, unbelievable. This is God, you're so awesome. And so I'm I'm like going crazy in my head. The people beside me, they weren't with me at prayer time. I'm like, do you know what happened? Do you know they're like, what are you doing? Like you're crazy. And I just wanted to scream, like, tell somebody. I'm freaking out because. And then I'm thinking, what if I hadn't prayed? I don't know, but I think that if I'm looking at things like this, I'm thinking, the Lord not just ordains what happens, but the means. He doesn't just ordain the ends of 50 people. He ordains the means, and the means were prayer. He ordains these things. You should pray. Huge, big, huge, big prayers. So maybe it's something big like you want an X number of people to be saved in your ministry. Maybe it's that crazy, hard-hearted family member that just no way this, this person's ever going to get saved. Maybe that's the big, crazy prayer. Maybe it's that, um, that sin you deal with that you have never even come close to seeing victory in. God, that's the big prayer. Kill that thing in my life because I'm tired of it. Maybe it's uh, your family member has something awful, cancer, very sick, and he's, Lord, heal him. Like, this it's a crazy, huge ask to heal him. Maybe it's something as crazy as, you just constantly live with the spouse that just doesn't ever come around to the Lord, and it's just so hard in the house. God, just bring my husband, bring my wife, like to just adore you and let this house be filled with that. Maybe it's you pray like crazy the Lord would just restore your marriage. Like, that seems like astronomically impossible, but the Lord could do it. I mean, there's huge prayers. I want you to write it down right now. Here's what we're going to do. We're literally going to pray right now in the sermon. I'm going to come back. I'm going to finish the sermon later. But we're going we're to pray right now. You're going to pray right now for that. You can, you can pray with the person you came. You can pray out loud. You can pray in your head. You can stand. I, I imagine Moses, as he's saying this, wasn't, wasn't you know, Having a relaxing seat. I think he's just, Lord, do it. We're gonna pray right now. You're gonna pray for that amazingly astronomically crazy big God, you can only do it. You can do far more than I can ever conceive of thing right now in the service. And then we'll come back and we'll do some more of the sermon. So close your eyes and start praying. I'll I'll close this in prayer in a little while. God, you're so good to us. The love that you have for us is what draws us into being able to pray like this. And Lord, I pray for my friends. I pray that you would answer these prayers. God, I I pray boldly right now because of Jesus that you would answer them quickly. It wouldn't be delayed. It wouldn't be long, but instead it would be quick. They would see the immediate fruit of these prayers. God, you would be so glorified because of that. Their faith would be so strengthened by that. I pray that you would do it quickly. We know that all things happen in your will, and your will be done, but God, do it quickly. I thank you that they have the faith to pray such big prayers. Pray such big prayers. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Here's the last thing I want you to see. This is where we see our absolute need for a substitute. Verse 30, Moses says he's going to go up to the Lord and perhaps an atonement can be made. And he's going to ask for the Lord to forgive their sin. The fourth remark about idolatry is this our only hope for idolatry to be killed, defeated is the atonement of the substitute. This text leads Moses immediately to that conclusion, as it does us. Moses understood that atonement is what it was needed for his people to be forgiven. The wrath of God had to be appeased. When it says, when Moses says, turn from your burning anger and relent, he's not saying just take that anger and just throw it out there and just never ever worry about it anymore You can just let it go because you're God. Holy God can't just take his anger and just poof, throw it out of the window and act like it doesn't exist. Instead, a holy God has to take that and pour it out still. So this anger was deterred, but it still is going to eventually be poured out. Moses understood that there needed to be atonement and Moses is going to come and serve as the mediator. But this last section, as we read, We understand there has to be an atonement. There has to be a substitute. And what it leads us to by the end of this is that there isn't one. Moses walks off the mountain knowing that it still hasn't happened. That's what we're supposed to be led to as readers. Where's the atonement? Who's the substitute? The Old Testament is screaming out, Who is the substitute? the Messiah, but where is he? But these very people will eventually have one. Jesus Christ would come to the cross. He would ascend to it and bear this punishment. The Lord's anger would no longer be turned or held back, but then poured out completely on Jesus for the idolaters, you and me, that deserved it. He would come and bear all of it. He would take the punishment in our place in order for our sins to be covered. And now we see why, and I say this all the time, why Jesus is the truer, Jesus is the better Moses. Moses wasn't the Savior. Although people think in this particular book, As the people are looking at Moses, Moses, you're going to be it. Moses is clear as he finishes writing the Pentateuch. And it wasn't me. I died on the mountain. I never made it to the promised land. Over and over, we're to be seeing that Jesus is our only hope. He is the atonement for the people. He's the way that we're to be forgiven by God. He's not just the mediator like Moses, but he's also the sacrifice. The mediator is the sacrifice. That just blows all of our categories out of the water because that's not what we were expecting. And because he's also the sacrificed sacrifice, we can be the children of God. We can have full, bold access to pray these amazingly huge prayers of confession and repentance and asking the Lord to do something. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said something to me, a story. It's just an illustration. I I will never forget it because it's so good, it's so perfect. He said, whenever I'm a professor here at seminary, I have this kind of first room where the secretary is, you know, in order to come see me, you have to call on the phone, you have to come up there. Hi, can I see Dr., you know, whoever? No, you can't. He's studying right now. This is not an appointment time. I guess I can't. So you got this kind of first layer of protection, if you will, where he gets back to his final office, and this is where all the magic happens. It's where I write books and sermons and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to see me in a very professional status, you have to have appointments. And if I have time right now, and he said, "But that's how it is for people." Come, and we just think that's the formality of the way we have to approach God. But he said, "This is what's awesome." He said, "That's it's never how it is for my kids." When my wife gets there and my four-year-old comes, he doesn't care about Jane. Yeah, Jane, how you doing? Forget the formality. I'm running back here. And I'm not only going to come in here and say, hey, daddy. Instead, I'm going to climb up right into my daddy's lap. And I'm going to sit him and say, sit in his lap and say, dad, what's going on? That this is the kind of access we have. There's no formal, can I have an appointment to meet with God? There's no, is it time for Hey, Jane, out of the way. You're you're not needed. I can go straight to my daddy's lap and sit there. And you know what four-year-olds ask for? They ask for crazy stuff. They don't have like small, big. They just go always for the gusto. Dad, can we go to Carowinds right now? Son, it's midnight. It's not even open. You know, he's not open up at midnight, but you know what I mean. I'm not a bad dad. But they, they, (laughs) well, probably I am. But anyway, that's a whole separate sermon. But they always go for the gusto when they ask for stuff, right? Because four-year-olds don't have the categories of, oh, I'm not supposed to ask for big things. I can climb right up into the lap of my dad and I can ask for anything he wants. You know why? Because he knows his dad loves him more than anything. Listen, this is the exact same relationship you have with your father in heaven. It's not formal. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to beg to get in there. You can pass Jane and say whatever and go straight up to your dad and say, this is what I want. And Ephesians 3.20 says, it's our verse. I can do far more than you could ever ask or conceive. I just want you to ask. And then I will do it. And it won't happen if you don't ask. It'll happen in his time. But you gotta ask. Ask. This chapter leads us to something pretty astounding. That prayer isn't just a one-sided, get me right. Prayer changes things. It changes God. He does things. I shouldn't say changes God. God does things when we pray. God's immutable. He doesn't change. So (laughs) let's start praying that way. Let's start living like that as his children, as his sons and daughters. And let's worship him like he's worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for just this amazing, amazing access you have provided to the Father. Without your substitutionary death, without the atoning sacrifice that you made, we have no chance to be able to have this kind of access to the good, good Father and to be loved extravagantly and to have whatever we pray not only be able to be answered, but be answered far more abundantly than we could ever conceive or ask. So help us be those kinds of children that when idolatry or sinful behavior is in our our midst and we know it, that we boldly approach and we boldly confess and we boldly ask for forgiveness because we know that that's made available because of Christ's death on the cross. And more so, Lord, that we live lives that say, I can come to you and pray boldly and I know that you're a good father that wants to answer them. We pray this in Jesus' name.